Father, it is just good to be in your house and to sing your praise. Lord, it's good to be with your people, to fellowship with one another, and it's good, Father, to be in your word. And I would just ask that you would abundantly bless the preaching of your word. I pray for your help. I pray for your enablement. I pray for your power and a liberty just to just the freedom to preach, Lord, and let your spirit lead us and guide us and speak truth to us. And so, Lord, glorify yourself in this time and draw us close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I had the privilege uh, Friday night of being with the Celebrate Recovery Group here at the church. It's ministry here at Harvest, ministering to those with hurts and habits and hang-ups. And some are drug and alcohol are related. Others are sexual issues. Some fear and anxiety. Others uh, eating disorders or abuse. Or some of those people are living with people who have those, those struggles. And uh, again, I had the privilege of preaching the Word of God and worshiping with those believers, enjoying a chili cook-off and a pie contest. I now have uh, food issues. But anyway, <laughs> it, it was a good time. It really was. You know, what I really enjoyed, though, was spending time with people, spending time with people who are refreshingly real, transparent, authentic, and very, very vulnerable. And at one point in the service, uh, you mark milestones in people's lives, and they do this once a month with different color chips uh, representing different decisions or goals, and they are handed out. And and you're invited to stand up and, and come forward and take a chip. It's a visible reminder of God's work and what he's doing in your life. And, and the purpose is to encourage or to recognize victory and to celebrate God's recovery in your life. And uh, for instance, there's a red chip, which means 30 days of sobriety or 30 days of recovery. There's a green chip, 60 days. There's a yellow chip, six months. But it all begins with a little blue chip. And the blue chip is the most important chip. It represents personal surrender. It's a visible reminder that, Lord, I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm identifying an area of sin in my life, and I want it to change. And, Lord, I'm confessing that sin to you. I'm surrendering to you. It's not a chip of shame. It's a chip of surrender. It's a chip, really, of repentance. We're going to look at a passage this morning we see an entire nation stand to their feet, come forward, and take a blue chip. They take a chip of repentance, so to speak, and they confess their sins, and they stand before their God with broken, humble hearts, repenting. And honestly, every single one of us in this room here today needs to take a blue chip, needs to take a chip of repentance. Because there are areas of sin in our lives that God has been continually working on. For some of us, for years and years. For some of us, there are aspects of unholiness where we feel conviction. We know there's something in our life right now that God does not like. And we need to take care of it. Or maybe it's an ongoing secret habit or a secret sin that no one else even knows about, not even your spouse. And God, by his Spirit, has been convicting you, 
saying, it's time to change. It's time to repent. It's time to, so to speak, take that blue chip. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we see the Israelites. The Israelites, a nation so blessed, and yet they've become so bad. They have forgotten their foundation. They've drifted into paganism, and they were exiled for it, sent to Babylon because of their sin. And now in Nehemiah, under Nehemiah's leadership, a portion of the people have returned to the promised land. They've rebuilt the ancient walls, and the people have been celebrating and listening to the Word of God as it is read by Ezra, and they've learned about this feast, the Feast of Booths, and they've celebrate the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles when they make shift, these, they make, uh, these makeshift branch lean-tos for seven days, representing what their ancestors did in the wilderness wanderings. But just a day or two after this Feast of Booths, a change has taken place deep within their hearts. And they stand broken, and they stand humbled. And they arise, they stand, and they repent. And they teach us something about repentance in our own lives. What it looks like. What it's to sound like. What we should act like. And they help us understand as believers in Jesus how to go about repenting and what it means to repent. Read along with me in verse 1 of chapter 9 of Nehemiah. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting, in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from, from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. O may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. What does repentance look like? What does it sound like? What does it mean? First thing they teach me is that repentance is national. Make it national. There's an entire population of those in the land who've gathered, and there's this broad awareness of their sin and this wide stirring in their souls of regret and a nationwide brokenness over its wrongs. Oh, that our nation would take the blue chip of repentance. And fall on its knees as these people did. We've fallen so far away from God. This is not the same nation that was founded 200 years ago. It's become so cold and so calloused. And we don't think twice about slaughtering unborn babies. Or proving sexual perversion. Or rampant porn like a disease over the internet, TV, and your phones. We worship the almighty dollar instead of the almighty God. Oh, does this nation need the blue chip of repentance. We need leaders like this leader who spoke these words. It is fit in becoming in all people at all times to acknowledge and revere the supreme government of God, 
to bow in humble submission to his chastisement, to confess and deplore their sins and transgressions in full conviction that the fear of the Lord, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So spoke our president, Abraham Lincoln, when he declared a national day of prayer and fasting in 1861. Where are those leaders today? Well, say, America, repent of your sin. America, we must pray to our God. America, we must fast. We must sacrifice and seek our God because only with Him is wisdom. These are the leaders we need. These are the leaders we need to pray for and pray that God rises, raises up. We need another great awakening in this nation, a spiritual revival to sweep this land. And revival starts with repentance. We need to pray for a deep understanding and regret and shame over the sin in our nation. That there would be an awareness in the soul of this nation again. And by the way, that's what we do on Wednesday nights. We pray and we pray for our nation. See, some of you, all you want to do is whine, bellyache, and complain about your president and the leaders and this, that, and the other thing. Why don't you shut your mouth about complaining and start praying? You should be doing a whole lot more praying than you should complaining. Why don't you who are more prone to complain, all you do is whine and gripe about the government every single day. Next time your husband whines and gripes, ladies, tell him to come on Wednesday night to prayer meeting. Tell him he needs to stop whining and griping and start praying. Because that's what we do. We seek our God. Repentance, make it national. Repentance, make it personal. It says the sons of Israel assembled. These were individual people waking up, spiritually speaking, coming out of their spiritual slumber. The sinful grogginess in their lives was giving way to spiritual godliness. It's like a patient coming out of anesthesia after surgery. They were starting to wake up spiritually as a nation. And it came the day after dismantling their booths these lean-tos say, listen to the word of God. The day after dismantling these booths, they began dismantling their sinful hearts, asking God to put them back together the way they should go. They said, God, take my heart. Make it what it's supposed to be. I want to live the way I'm supposed to be living. I want to act the way I'm supposed to be acting. I want to speak the way God I'm supposed to be speaking. Maybe you need to give God your heart. Say, God, dismantle it and make it what it's supposed to be. That's what these people were doing. Repentance was national. It was personal. It was also physical. Look at verse 1. The sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. Repentance affected their appetite. Repentance affected their appearance. They went from feasting to fasting. From stuffing their faces to filling their souls. Spiritual focus was overshadowing their physical desire. When is the last time, honestly, you and I were so broken over our sin... Something we did, something we said, somewhere we went, that we decided to just fast and spend that time in prayer with God. 
When's the last time we were so sorrowful over sin in our life, we got together with God and we skipped food all day and just replaced that time with prayer to God and confession to God and seeking God? When's the last time we were so broken over our sin, we we skipped a meal and said, God, I don't want to eat. I just want to spend time with you. I I just want to confess my sin and I want to get my life right. That's what they teach us about repentance. Repentance affects us physically. And and not only their appetite, but their appearance. They took it to a a whole new level. It says they had sackcloth and dirt upon them. They wore these these clothes of confession, as it were. Sackcloth was a coarser, dark-colored material, usually black, made of goat hair. It was symbolic of sorrow and brokenness and shame and displaying a deep grief over their sin. In other words, they were saying, God, I don't want to just say I'm sorry. I want to show you I'm sorry. I want you to look at me and know that I am sincere in my brokenness over my sin. I think sometimes we take our sin so lightly. We take our sin just so nonchalantly, like it's not a big deal. Oh, it's a big deal. We've offended a holy, awesome, powerful God. Maybe we don't need to just say it. Maybe there's a way you and I need to start showing it, our repentance. National, personal, physical, it was relational, verse 2. They took their repentance to a new level here. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners. They got real serious. They were surrounded by a pagan culture being influenced by ungodly people. And all of a sudden, it seems to me that they're starting to end unhealthy relationships and change and separate themselves from people who've been bringing them down, spiritually speaking. I want you to understand something about true repentance. It's willing to change relationships. True repentance is willing to end relationships that should not be there. Now, I'm not talking about a believer being married to an unbeliever and ending a marriage because there's a covenant relationship there between God with God. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about serious relationships. Maybe you're dating an unbeliever and you know you should not be. Maybe you're dating a believer who's not living for the Lord you should not be dating them. Maybe you're living together in sin and you're both believers and you know that is not right before God. There has to be changes made when you are a true believer repenting of your sin. Maybe the changes need to come in who you hang around with most or do business with or who you're courting or planning on marrying. Understand there is such a thing as biblical separation. Psalm 26, verse 4. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. And if you don't believe that, you're deceived. 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Verse 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and be what? Separate. Sometimes there are friendships that need to change. There are relationships that need to end. Now, we also know that there are important times to befriend unbelievers. 
For instance, we've encouraged everybody to get together with unbelievers tonight at Super Bowl parties. Reach out, invite people in your home, be able to build relationships, build those connections with unbelievers so that you can eventually share the gospel. Talk to them about spiritual things. Lead them to Christ. Invite them to church. Let God do a work. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about those relationships that are negatively impacting and affecting you spiritually and drawing you away from following God. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 5.19 says, I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but I did not mean at all with immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers, idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He's saying, pick your friends very carefully. And if there's a believer out there that you can't even tell they're a believer because of the way they're living, you should not be hanging around with those people. God makes it very, very clear in his word. You may say, well, Scott, stop judging me. Stop putting your nose in my business. It's not about judging. It's really honestly seeking your spiritual protection. It's seeking God's best for your life. It's seeking God's blessing on your life. 1 Samuel 2.30, the words to King Saul, for those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. I want God's honor in your life. I want God's blessing for your life. True repentance is willing to change or end relationships. The flip side, though, is this. True repentance will establish or reestablish godly relationships. Hebrews 10.25 Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. Be with God's people. As is the habit of some, though, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I believe there needs to be a rededication of ourselves to be with God's people. Repentance, make it national, personal, physical, relational. Make it verbal. Don't just think you got to do something. Tell God about it. We see this in verse 2. We also see it in verse 3. The second half of verse 2. They stood and confessed their sins and the inequities of their fathers. Verse 3, the second half. And for another fourth. That's a fourth of the day. They confessed. Confessed their sins. They were confessing personal sins. Now, we're not told exactly what these personal sins are. But historically, based on the context of Nehemiah, we know some of the sin that the people struggled with. There was sexual immorality. There was idolatry, there was financial greed, enslaving one another and charging interests on fellow Jews. There are personal sins that needed to be dealt with, and maybe there are personal sins in your life that you know need to be dealt with. There's immoral behavior that needs to be dealt with. There are unholy habits, there are financial discrepancies. Anger, bitterness, unforgiveness in your heart. Lies that maybe you've concealed. Things that you have stolen. Things that you know before God you need to take care of and are not right in your life. You know what you need to do? You need to come before God and say, God, I need the blue chip. I need to surrender this to you. I need to identify my sin. And I need to deal with it, God. Help me to do that. 
Never fear confession or repentance. Sometimes we fear how God will respond. I want to encourage you. God is not like the young Catholic priest upon hearing confessions for the very first time. After a day of hearing confessions, he was approached by an older priest who said, you know, I think that when a person finishes with a confession, you should say something like, I agree, it's a terrible thing you've done, and I would encourage you to stay away from that kind of behavior from now on, instead of saying, wow. I want you to understand, when you come to God and confess, he's not going to go, wow, you did what? Are you kidding me? What were you thinking? You're stupid? What? Wow! It's not how God's going to treat you. God already knows what you've done. Let, let me tell you what God's going to do. Let me tell you how God's going to treat you. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen: A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. He's going to fully accept you when you come to him contrite and broken. James 4, 6, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God's opposed to proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know what he's going to do? He's going to pour his grace upon your life. It's repeated in 1 Peter 5, 5. He gives grace to the humble. 1 John 1, 9, you know it. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what God says? You will find forgiveness and you will find cleansing and you will find grace and you will find acceptance when you come to me and you confess. When dealing with one another in James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. You'll find healing. That's what God says. There's no wow from God. There's acceptance and grace and forgiveness and cleansing. So take the blue chip of repentance and spend some time with God and surrender that sin. Identify it, confess it, and repent of it. Now, now, they confess personal sins, but they also confess generational sins. Seems odd. It says they stood and confessed the sins and iniquities of their fathers. Previous generations and what they had done. Now, this wasn't blaming others or dredging up the past in bitterness. I believe this was all about acknowledging why they were where they were as a nation. Identifying with it. I believe this was about reminding themselves of the dangers of doing what they did. We, we don't want to act like our ancestors did. We don't want to go back to living like that. You know, as Americans, we like to distance ourselves from the sins of past generations. God's word teaches a connection to the past. Not that we are guilty of someone else's sins, but that we are willing to acknowledge it. And understand we are where we are because of where we were. Maybe it's the sin of slavery. To say, why are we where we are with our race relations? Look back at the sin of slavery. Why are we where we are with abortion? Look back at the legalization. Why are we where we are? He says, learn from the past. And there are lessons to learn from the past. There are lessons to learn from Israel. One is this. Fear the judgment of God. If God can judge his chosen people, Israel, surely he will not hesitate to judge America. Understand that. 
This nation has been so blessed by God to turn its back on God is to invite the judgment of God. That's what it is. We need to learn from the sins of others. George Santiana said it this way, very well spoken. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You better remember the past. Because if you don't, you'll be condemned to repeat it. Or to put it in another way, with the context of the wilderness wandering of the Israelites who've come out of Egypt and for 40 years wander and they're idolatrous and immoral and they grumble and they whine and they complain. And God lays every single one of them out in the wilderness and they die. 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened as an example for us. He says, listen up and learn so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. There are lessons to learn from the past. Here's another lesson. How we live now affects generations to come later. That's what the Israelites were learning That means you better lead your family well. Pass on a godly heritage to those children, to those grandchildren. And may our children not have to stand and repent for our sins and say, look at the mess we're in because of pop, because of dad and mom. My grandfather on my dad's side did just that. Raised in a godly Christian home and church all the time. Lovers of Jesus Christ. And in his 20s, he said, forget this. And he took my whole line, my dad's whole line of the family, away from God. And only by the grace of God, he started picking us off one by one and drawing us back to the faith. There's still a lot of brothers and sisters, though, my dad, that do not know Jesus Christ. And grandchildren and children. They weren't done confessing yet, though. Personal sins, generational sins. Look at verse 3. And for another fourth, that's a fourth of the day they confessed and confessed and confessed and confessed. They weren't done. They wanted to squeeze every single sin out of their soul. You ever have a washcloth or a towel? You're washing your car or something, and you squeeze that thing and squeeze that thing, and then you have somebody else hold it, and you twist it, you twist it to get every drop of water out. You know what they're doing? Squeeze my soul, God. I want to confess every single sin that I can possibly think of. That's what they're doing. They confess, and they confess, and they confess, and God, there's more sin in my life, and this isn't right, and that attitude's wrong, and I didn't treat that person right, and financially I didn't do this, and and they're just trying to think of every possible sin. When's the last time you let God wring out your soul, and you got serious about repentance? You said, God, I need a boatload of these chips. Wring out this soul, God. I have so much sin in my life. Just wring it out. When's the last time? Squeeze it out. It's like a toothpaste tube. You, you squeeze it out. I, I want to let you know, I make that toothpaste tube repent of every last bit of toothpaste. I do. I squeeze it and I squeeze it. You may say, I'm cheap. Well, I'm remaking it repent. And, and I just squeeze it and squeeze it and squeeze it. My wife, on the other hand, does not understand toothpaste repentance. It's not all gone. She opens a new one. What's her problem? There's still toothpaste in that thing. We really need to understand true soul repentance. To squeeze it out before God. You know what we really need? 
This is honestly what we need. We need a solenoscopy. <laughs> and you don't wait till you're 50 to get one. You, you need God to clean out your soul completely because there are polyps of sin in there. And they're going to become cancerous if you're not careful. And they're going to destroy your life. You, you need a solenoscopy and you need today, some of you. You need to get alone with God today and say, God, clean me out. Clean it all out because there's so much garbage in my life. Get rid of all of it, God. Get rid of all of it and confess it and confess it and confess it. That's repentance. It's national, it's personal, it's physical, it's relational, it's verbal. It's also scriptural. Verse 3, look at this. They stood in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. It wasn't just about getting the sin out, it was about getting the scripture in. It was about bathing their brain with the holy word of God and bathing their heart and their soul with the holy word of God. It was about eating clean, spiritually speaking. Taking in what was healthy. Psalm 119, 9 and 11 How can a young man keep his way pure? Well, by keeping it according to what? Your word. Give me the word of God. Help me stay pure. Verse 11, your word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. D.L. Moody said it well. The Bible will keep you from sin or what? Sin will keep you from the Bible. You only have one of two choices there. The Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. And it was an extended time in God's word, verse 3, that you can't overdo it with the word of God. You can overdo it with your video games. You can overdo it with TV. You can overdo it with that novel. You can overdo it with Facebook. You can overdo it with whatever. Put it in there. And some of us do. We overdo it with everything but the word of God. Spend more time in God's word. Extended time in God's word. Not this daily crumb. Yes, a little bit is better than nothing. But get in the habit of starting to spend extended time in the Word of God. And just read it. And just seek to understand it. And reread it over again. And ask God's insight into it. Ask His Spirit to teach you and fill you. And, and just enjoy the Word of God. Repentance is scriptural. Repentance is also organizational. Verse 4 and 5, you have leaders that are leading. They are the spiritual leaders, the Levites, standing on this platform. And then they're, they're crying out, arise, bless the Lord God forever and ever. And they cry out with a loud voice before that to the Lord their God with confession. The Levites led in confession and repentance. And they were visible before the people. These were the interpreters of the law. They functioned as the teachers. They cared for the sanctuary, the offerings, things like that. You have two lists of eight names, five names common on both lists. This is probably two groups of people with different functions. The first group voicing confession, the second group leading in praise. What I like about this is you have leaders that were willing to acknowledge shortcomings. You have leaders who were authentic, transparent, real, and humble. It is vital for spiritual leaders to be transparent vulnerable, authentic, and real. It is vital for pastors to be that, directors to be that, deacons to be that, teachers to be that. If you are in a position of spiritual leadership in this church, you need to be authentic. You need to be real. You need to be transparent. 
need to be vulnerable. The last thing God's people need are fake leaders. You and I need to be willing to admit we're wrong. You and I need to be willing to say, I blew it. I'm sorry. You and I need to be willing and, and, and willing to be humble because a proud leader, in my opinion, is a disconnected leader. And a proud leader is a dangerous leader. We don't want disconnected leaders in this church. We don't want dangerous leaders in this church. They let in confession, but then they let in worship. And they, they pointed the people to God and said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Which leads us to our next point, repentance, make it worshipful. They pointed them up to the Lord and focused them on the greatness of their God and encouraged them in their relationship with the Lord and, and who he is. In verse 3 it says, they worshiped the Lord their God after they confessed. And then in verse 5, arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. In other words, listen carefully, repentance is not all doom and gloom. Repentance isn't constant shame and guilt and woe is me. A big part of repentance is praise. Praising God for his forgiveness, praising God for his mercy, praising God for his grace. Acknowledging guilt, yes, but acknowledging grace, the grace of God. Psalm 103, verse 10, he's not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Praise his name. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. You are loved. As far as the east is from the west, say it with me. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. And the east never meets the west. They're gone forever. Your sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so exalt the name of your God. That is the proper conclusion to confession. Praising God for his grace. Praising God for his mercy. Praising God for his forgiveness. Praising God for his love. And some of you need to get that because you, you hang out in the doom and gloom and woe is me and look what I've done and you got to move on and say, praise you, God, I'm forgiven and I'm cleansed and I'm, I've been shown your grace and mercy. And that's repentance. Make it national. Make it personal. Physical, relational, verbal, scriptural, organizational, and worshipful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a group of people that modeled repentance for us that we might be better at it. Give us such sensitive, sensitive hearts to sin in our own lives that we might be quick to take that blue chip of repentance and surrender our lives to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I just want you right now just to talk to the Lord. Maybe you just need to come up, so to speak, before God and grab a blue chip. Identify that sin with him right now. Surrender your life to him right now. Confess and repent of whatever the Holy Spirit has revealed to you needs to change.
Maybe you just need to worship the Lord. Just praise Him right now. Thank Him for His incredible love, forgiveness, grace, mercy, acceptance. Just praise Him right now for His love for you. Your sin is gone. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Some of you are here this morning and you've never come to know Christ as your Savior. Today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day that you become a true child of God. And you may say, Scott, that's me. I I need forgiveness. What do I do? I want God in my life. The quietness of your heart, just call out to him in faith right now. Words like these, Lord Jesus, I don't deserve you. I am a wicked sinner. But I ask you to please forgive me. Please save me from all my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for loving me that much. Lord, I place my faith in you. Place it in you and you alone. Only you can save me. Save me, I pray. Forgive me, I pray, of all my sin. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've called out to the Lord this morning, we rejoice with you. And we encourage you to talk to one of us here, a good friend, Christian friend or family member about.